0: If you stay in denial, if you assume that no news is good news, you're dangerous. Here's a very simple litmus test I tell leaders all the time. If somebody is not coming into your office once or twice a week, saying something that makes you uncomfortable, you can be very confident your leadership sucks.
1: Welcome to the Leading Transformational Change podcast. Our passion is to help you lead and build heart-healthy organizations with a culture of purpose and integrity. I'm your host Tobias Dursson, and I'm the co-founder of Heart Management. Before we start today's episode, I want to encourage you to go to leadingtransformationalchange.com, where you can subscribe to get free bi-weekly updates with key learnings from our amazing guests on this podcast. You will also receive a free white paper on addressing the three assumptions that destroy culture and kill integrity you really don't want to miss it. Now, on to the show. Purpose, truth and justice might not be the first words that come to mind when you think about a great company. Instead, too many organizations are characterized by animosity, meaningless purpose statements, rampant dishonesty and unhealthy office politics. Where getting ahead means pulling others down. Issues that, according to today's guest, Ron Carucci, are left unaddressed at our own peril. In his new book, To Be Honest, Ron shows how the world's most successful organizations are leading with a power of truth, justice, and purpose. How our organizations can and should be a place where people can find purpose, dignity, and belonging. Ron Carucci has a 30-year track record, helping CEOs and executives tackle challenges of strategy, organization, and leadership in 25 countries at more than 100 companies. He is co-founder and managing partner at Navalent and serves on the advisory board at Ethical Systems at New York University. Ron is also a regular contributor to Harvard Business Review and Forbes and author of eight books. Ron, it's a privilege to have you on the podcast today.
0: Tobias, thanks so much for
1: having me back. It's great to be with you again. So over this last year, as I've had the privilege of of getting to know you a bit, I've been greatly inspired by your passion for building honest organizations where all stakeholders flourish. And I think that's a message that seems to just get more important, maybe especially in the wake of a pandemic. And, And since we had our last conversation on this podcast about a year ago, You've been finishing the manuscript for your new book, to be honest, and I found it to be a really practical guide filled with insightful research and helpful examples of why honesty, justice, and purpose should be a part of every organization's identity. You've worked with senior leaders in corporations around the world for decades. What is really the vision that you would want leaders and professionals to grasp of how organizations could and should operate that's perhaps different from much of what we see today that really made you write this book?
0: Well, you know, Tobias, I think um, we're, we're all talking about these concepts in some form. You know, we have psychological safety experts teaching us to speak up. We have the marketers who are purpose washing everything to make us look purpose driven. And we have all the diversity and inclusion folks doing equality work. The problem is they're doing those through campaigns not through fundamental shifts. What I learned in my research is that truth, justice, justice, and purpose are one thing, that that's what it takes to be honest. It's say the right thing, do the right thing, and say and do the right thing for the right reason. No longer do we have the luxury of simply not being liars. The bar has gone way up because our experience has dropped so low. But scandal avoidance or misconduct avoidance isn't the reason to change. What we now know about the most honest companies is that they're the most high-performing, They unleash the best talents from people so they can become their best selves. They unleash the greatest sense of purpose within individuals, creating an incredible force of a shared purpose. And on so many indices, they outperform their competitors. They outperform in brand loyalty. They outperform in margin. They outperform in stock indices of several different stocks. They outperform in longevity of customer loyalty. So there's, there's all kinds of performance and cultural reasons to do it, to care. But the most important thing I found out is that it's not a character trait. Being honest doesn't come from good intentions. It doesn't come because I will it into existence or because I wrote something on the wall. Being honest, like any muscle, comes from going to the gym and working on it. That if you want to be good at, at honesty, you have to invest heavily in those capabilities. They're not natural. In fact, many cases, they're unnatural. They're unnatural. Um, So what I want leaders to understand is that you can thrive and build organizations in which people flourish in honesty, but you have to roll up your sleeves and do the work.
1: I I love that picture. And and something we talk a lot about to leaders and organizations is that if you really want to work on building a healthy culture and live values with integrity, it is not a project. It is a lifestyle change, an organizational lifestyle change. And in, in your experience and your research, what is one organization that has really made an impact on you in terms of of living out that vision of of honesty and who are really, like, they're, they're doing the work?
0: Well, I, gosh, there are so many wonderful stories in, in that I... And p- part of what made the book so thrilling to write is that it's a book of heroes, right? I didn't want to write about the villains anymore. We didn't need to hear about Volkswagen or Theranos or Wells Fargo anymore. I wanted to write about the heroes. I wanted to write about the people we we want, we want to emulate, whose experiences and whose whose choices we can copy. And so there are so many that come to mind, but I think Microsoft has been such a wonderful transformation to watch. Satya Nadella took the helm there and has completely transformed that culture. And one of my interviews for the book was Kathleen Hogan, his chief people officer. And to hear the kinds of things they've done to instill purpose into the organization, to create accountability that is fair and dignified, um, to to really focus on inclusiveness, um, and, and leveling the playing field for people to be successful. It's just inspiring at, at that scale, right? At 140,000 people from, f- f- traveling from a culture that was quite different and quite individualistic and quite Darwinian. And they've done it with such good heartedness and done it with such humility and delight. And it's hard work. There, again, there are many, many cases in the book that I got the privilege of curating. But that story is one that comes to mind as truly inspiring because I'm only eight miles away from them.
1: So I, I want to dig into to some of the examples that you take from your own work uh, during our, our conversation. And in, in your book, you tell the story of Blake, and that's not his real name, but uh, he's a newly appointed CEO of a $16 billion US global consumer products and, and one of your clients. And you quote Blake saying, I feel like every day I come to work to referee another knife fight or street brawl short of firing everyone I'm out of options for how to rehumanize this place and I'm sure that's a statement that others would feel uh, a similar sentiment so the company's product portfolio was underperforming and there were numerous signs of an unhealthy rivalry and the company did something that so many companies do, and I've seen it time and time again, that they try to solve it through advertising a new set of corporate values. Could you take us into that story? What was the situation? What was the issue with their approach at first? And how did they need to rethink their approach to actually see real change happen?
0: Before Blake took over, the values had, had just been redone, they had been refreshed. Blake was in a different role before he became CEO. It was a toxic culture. It was um, highly rivalrous. It was full of animosity. It was competing in a category that had lost its way. It was highly commoditized, and they had just become a large, complacent organization. So when Blake took over, of course, any new regime change will, will signal resistance, people to sort of dig their heels in and want to survive the change. Blake is, first of all, he's an incredibly principled man. He, integrity is foundational to him, and so is so is winning. I mean, he loves to win. And he knew this place needed to be gutted. And so rather than just doing cosmetic changes with like new wallpaper over rotted wallpaper, he gutted the organization and, and truly redesigned it to grow, to scale, and to, to be healthy. And he took leaders out who couldn't make the change. He didn't just announce new values, he embedded them. They became part of selection and development and reward and promotion criteria and um, evaluation criteria. They become part of the fabric of the organization. Um, and people who couldn't um, adopt a change their behavior, weren't allowed to stay. So he took on the hard, you know, three plus year journey of turning the company around. It wasn't just this spraying on or brushing on the illusion of change. He, he actually did the work. Um, and one of the funny quotes he said to me toward the end, because the words were so, you know, I mean, it, it cost him hundreds of millions of dollars to pull this off. And, you know, he was so struck by how many people could say the words, but couldn't live them. And one of his last comments to me was, whoever said talk is cheap never had to lead a company who relied so heavily on, on just words. But, you know, you know, if you fast forward in the story, it's a marvelous story. The company is turned around. It's performing extremely well. He has since actually moved on to be CEO of another company. But he's a wonderful example of what, if you really want to invest in changing an organization to live true to who it says it is, that's the, and, you've, and you've let it go too long. And, and you have that much duplicity baked into the organization, that's the work it takes to truly align it. Um, and many leaders just simply don't have the courage or the tenacity or the grit to,
1: to do the work. One thing that I find so interesting is is this concept, if we think about internal rivalry, animosity, and things like that, you think in a sense that when we come into an organization, we come together for a shared purpose, shared mission, shared, shared goals, and and that in some way we so often struggle with this. And I I, I almost every time I, I talk to a leader, uh, HR director or whatever, that is one of the issues that they are facing within their organization. And we had in, in on our last episode we had Adam Kahin on, and and he talked about how he thinks that, that maybe it's almost easier to at least see or bring the issues to the table, get the players to get together when it comes to a big violent conflict, because it is so clear that you cannot continue in the same way. But in an organization, it's easier to kind of just go on and, and just just keep it uh, without really uncovering what's going on. And why do you think that is? And, and what do you think can be done to make sure that we actually uh, deal with these things and and kind of raise the stakes in a way to really make sure that we understand how important it is that we actually do deal with them.
0: Well, I think leaders have to. By the way, I love Adam's work. i'm What a great connection that was to have on your show. He's brilliant. His denial is such a profound force, right? So, in in Adam's comparison, some type of a catastrophe, a major product recall, a scandal. Um, uh, a safety violation. Some, some catastrophe often does bring these things to a head. But, but, but how sad to wait for that to happen? What most leaders don't understand is that if if you stay in denial, if you assume that no news is good news, and then you're just accelerating the growth of the ethical fungus in the petri dish in the cracks of your organization, if you assume it's not there, then you're, you're dangerous, You have to assume unless you're ferreting it out and cleaning it out, it means you're not finding it. Here's a very simple litmus test I tell leaders all the time. If somebody is not coming into your office once or twice a week saying something that makes you uncomfortable, you can be very confident your leadership sucks. And just assume that. If you assume no news is good news, you're part of the problem. These catastrophes don't start that way. The, The seeds of a Wells Fargo or a Volkswagen were sown years before they met a headline. Um, you have to assume that those things are festering. And in fact, my book, to be honest, opens up with very common, simple, what appear to be just organizational nuisances or annoyances are so commonplace, we we don't even see them for what they are, but they are the seeds of failure being sown. And when they are chronic, you're just accelerating that failure.
1: In your book, you talk about the importance of making sure that our accountability systems promote purpose, justice, and dignity. Could you give an example of what that means and why you believe that it is so important?
0: Well, have you ever had anybody say to you, wow, I can't wait for my performance appraisal? Probably not. No. You, you say that next week's your performance review, people start losing sleep. They start embellishing their accomplishments. They have to fill out the forms for their boss. Our processes of both formal and informal accountability are dehumanizing. You, you, you don't really commonly hear somebody say, "Wow, well, my one-on-ones with my boss are great. I leave them feeling energized and inspired and um, supported and or give with, help, with helpful feedback on how I can get better. So, and part of the sea change we're seeing in the workplace is that the content of our work has so dramatically shifted. Right? In a knowledge economy, people's remit is no longer X number of production units or X number of outputs. My remit is my analyses, my insight, my creative ideas, my radical thinking, my conjecture. So much of my remit is an extension of who I am. We can no longer say to somebody, it's not personal, it's business. I have to evaluate the work. It's not about you because I am the work. And so the process by which those contributions are evaluated and measured and discussed should be the most inspiring and dignifying process in an organization. But today, they're dehumanizing, they're, they're, um, they're categorical thinking, they're, they're pigeonholing, and they make people feel demeaned and invisible, not seen and known. Um, and it's it's torture. You know, I, I had one client, and this story's in the book, I had one client, I showed up to a routine coaching session with him, and he was I mean, his neck was red, he's pounding the table. He just come from his performance appraisal and he said, she gave me a three. I'm always a four. How did I get a three? Who got the fours? You know, because there was a quota now. And so a minimum number of fours she can give out. You know, if you look at behind neuroscience, neuroscience tells us that his reaction wasn't unusual, right? Uh, when we get, we, we, we now know that our amygdala is triggered, our sense of flight or fight, uh, our threat is triggered because when we feel categorized, when we feel labeled, we feel unsafe, we feel off balance, we feel unseen, right? So we have all these devices that were intended to make the system fair and objective, But there's nothing fair about treating everybody the same because we're all so different, right? Sameness is no longer fairness. And so until we reintroduce dignity uh, and justice, fairness, into the process so that everybody has the same chance of success, no matter who you are, no matter what you look like, uh, no matter where you hail from, we have set the stage for dishonesty. Because when people feel wronged, they feel entitled to take. And so we've got to completely rethink how we... Talk about accountability, how we define it, and how we embody it.
1: Could could you give an example of what that could practically look like if done in a more uh, just way and then done with dignity?
0: So first of all, let's talk about how we give feedback. Let's talk about on a regular basis how are we talking about somebody's contributions, how we're we talking about their successes, how are we talking about their shortfalls? When they walk away from those interactions are they thinking about their own behavior or yours, do they feel helped and supported? When you have to document those contributions, what are you saying? How, when people look at it, do they feel like it's accurate? Do they feel like you understood what it took for them to accomplish what they did? Do they feel supported? Do they feel challenged in a positive way? Do they feel like that you're stewarding their talent as much as you're stewarding their output? So it's a matter of a mindset shift. that The, the, the fundamental relationship between a leader and a follower is the core of where healthy accountability is born. So if the quality of your relationship, the depth of the connectivity between you and those you lead is insufficient, you're automatically adjudicating unfair accountability because they're not going to trust you. Simple device. The next time somebody brings you a deadline or a project that it's due or hands in work that you asked for them, pause and ask for the story. Say to them, you know, I'm sure I have no idea what it took for you to do that, but tell me the story. What was it like? How'd 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 you do it? Pause and ask for the story. Say to them, you know, I, I'm sure I have no idea what it took for you to do that, but tell me the story. What was it like? How'd you, get, how'd you, how'd you do it? Um, and, see what, and, watch, and then shut up and listen and watch what happens. Watch how animated they become. Watch how honest they become about where they struggled. Watch what they tell you they would have never told you. Watch how much you learn about what motivates them. Just ask for the story, because what you're doing in that question is honoring the fact that the contribution is an extension of the contributor. It's a reflection of them um, by asking them to fuse them together. Um, that's one of the most dignifying things you can do. Is just simply ask
1: for the story. That's so helpful. And there's a story in your book about how restorative practices can be put to work in a business context. And and, and to me, that that story is extra meaningful because it deals with something that we talk a lot about on this podcast, and which I something that I believe so strongly in, and that is the need for practicing courageous humility if we are to build a healthy culture and you you take the example of Angela the president of a 6 billion dollar division of a 30 billion apparel company and Angela had just received the bad news that her normally high employee engagement scores had dipped could you take us into that story and how Angela used restorative principles to rebuild trust dignity and a more healthy culture and maybe what actually happened first in in the reactions from her other managers
0: so yeah it's a great story thanks for bringing it up tobias so angela is a you know she's a very high performing very driven woman she's a she's deeply principled but she was she was driven to perform well and she drove her organization hard and of course the the minute that her and her six VPs sat down they were dismissive they were like this is incredulous how could this be We're the the best. People love us. Um, And specifically where the the data had dipped was around the issue of employee development. And so immediately she ordered an HR study. I want to see all the training we do, all the money we spend on coaching. I want to see everything we do uh, on career development. Of course, the data that they got back from HR suggested people should be thrilled with what we're doing. So now she's frustrated more. So she sent her vice presidents off and she asked me what my advice. And I said, you know what? Let's test the theory. Don't tell them what to do. Let them on their own decide how they want to go go learn into their respective departments and find out what this data means. Let's see what they do. So two of them went off and did this sort of roadshow. They went and took all the data they got from HR and went out and announced to people how, in fact, the division was actually great at development and career-mindedness and, career and advancement issues. So and they came back and said, we've corrected the perception. Everybody gets it now. Two others went back and asked their teams, who, who of course, told them what they wanted to hear and said, well, uh, we can't make any sense of it either. We, we don't know what it means. So they came back and said, we don't think the data means much at all because my team didn't understand it either. One woman, I think her name was Helen, uh, came back and she did something very different. She went out and did what she called, I think she called them listening circles. And she just sat with members in her department and she said, look, I know this data is telling us something and I know it's something not good. I just want to hear from you Um, What does it mean? Where are we missing things? Where are we falling short of meeting your needs? And she just was quiet. And she did it with four or five different circles. And of course, she got an avalanche of information. In essence, the culture was so driven. So it wasn't that they weren't providing the opportunities for people to develop. People weren't given the time to actually take advantage of them. They were so busy and so driven. And with so many competing priorities, they were exhausted. And there was no time to talk about their development. Their bosses weren't even inquiring about it. That was the problem. So she brought that back to the team. And of course, the other four vice presidents began to jump on it and dismiss it and try and convince Angela not to listen to her. Fortunately, Angela had the presence of mind to realize that she was hearing some golden data. And of course, when she was in, her impulse was to speak. And, you know, I sort of put my head up and go, just wait, wait. And she stopped and she, she really thought about the fact that some of this was a reflection of her leadership, that she had really wounded a high-performing division by driving it further than it was able to, to go. And so she thanked Helen for her courage to do what she did. And she even, to the two vice presidents who went out and sort of presented the data, she said, I am two reactions to what you did. I appreciate your ingenuity and, I am, and your um, proactivity to go out there I want to present. And my stomach is nauseated by what it must have felt like to sit in that room and have the entire set of people that you both lead feel dismissed in their concerns. But you know what? You were just doing what I trained you to do. She said, now the rest of us are gonna go do what Helen did. We're gonna go out and we're gonna listen because the, if the toxins are just showing up now, if we do nothing two years from now, this place will be in ruins and I'm not gonna let that happen. We're gonna change and we're gonna start with us and we're gonna go listen to what's really wrong out there. And it was bumpy. You know, Some of the people on her team didn't make it. Some of the people below their team didn't make it because she realized she had, she had created a monster but she took responsibility for that. She apologized. She let people know that this was not her intent. And she wanted it to be different. She told her boss, the CEO, what she was doing. And she owned it. She was transparent and vulnerable with it. And over the course of the next year, she radically changed that division, um, which, of course, it maintained its high-performing division, its high-performing status, but performed even better.
1: I think this is so important for, for all of our listeners to just pause and, and and think about that so often we kind of just want to move on and we, we just want to take the easy path but i think in in many of these situations if we do not actually take the time to think what actually led us to this place what what motivated us what what did we believe and value that actually took us to this place and and reflect on that and and then that we're ready to actually take responsibility and apologize and, and be honest and transparent about what we've done. I think that we cannot rebuild trust. We cannot rebuild a, a healthy culture. What's your input on that, Ron?
0: Well, I think, you know, you're not fooling anybody, right? I think when leaders are trying to, when you, the minute you try and cover anything up, it, it's going to start to rot. The cover is going to give away. Um, people are very well aware of your flaws. They're very well, I mean, they're they're talking about it quite intelligently. You should get in on the conversation. So the the concealment is never the answer. People think that that's a safe place in hiding. It's the most dangerous place you can because you're on your own. When a real crisis hits, people will not have your back. And so the attempt to hide or constrain or keep on your game face or try and rally the troops and keep them positive while things are you know, struggling. It's uh, these days. You know, with information being ubiquitous, data being ubiquitous, there's just nothing you can conceal, and so the effort is just a fool's errand.
1: That's so so helpful. And when when we talk about this, we're avoiding an us versus them mentality. Something we're focusing on a bit, especially in in, in this season of the podcast and and improving collaboration. We often look at it through the lens of how it can improve innovation or productivity or other goals that we have, but you use another lens in the book looking at it through our human need of connection and fulfilling that need. And you write that, given that our inborn social needs are hardwired, and given that we spend the vast majority of our waking hours at work, whether in person or remotely, our workplaces should offer some of the best opportunities for us to have our social needs met, for organizations, the results that come from satisfying workers' innate desire to connect and belong are not trivial. Why do you think it is so important that we actually meet that need? And and, and how, how can we do that in an organizational context?
0: Well, so belonging is a very sophisticated process, right? It's, you know, our amygdalas are always on guard for threats. We're always on guard for what happens. And we, we you know, through... Brain fMRI studies people it's it's visible that the minute you get a belonging cue, meaning someone nods at you or uses your name or includes you in a conversation, your amygdala goes from threat to protect. You now feel like you're part of a tribe. You feel like you're part of the crew, and you want to protect the relationships at all costs. And so, you know, because our remits, because our contributions are so deeply connected to who we are, we're going to safeguard them. And if you don't feel safe, if you don't feel like the, the community of people, of a team of which you're a part, is a safe place to bring all of what you can bring, you're going to bring part of it or very little of it. So belonging isn't just a social need, it's a performance driver. The more people feel included in belonging, people don't have to be agree with. They're not thin skinned. They can hear no. They can hear I disagree. They can hear you're wrong um, if it's respectful and with dignity. But what they can't hear is, is you're other. You're a they. Um, you're an outsider that's when you put people into their worst version of themselves. So creating a sense of of belonging, of of inclusion in the the fabric of the organization is an essential part of wanting your organization to perform at its best. The more people feel othered, the more people feel like outsiders, the less of their remit you're getting. It's a direct correlation.
1: So what do you see as the, the typical hindrances from satisfying this need of belonging in an organizational context? I mean, what are the things, where should a leader or professionals in an organization start working to make sure to kind of remove hindrances and and, and obstacles?
0: Well, so there's a range of them, Tobias. One is just ignorance, right? Leaders making the assumption, you know, of course I like them. Why would they feel like they wouldn't belong? As if there's no effort required. Um, Belonging is not a natural evolutionary state. And if it is, it takes too long. We don't have the luxury of waiting years before people feel comfortable. Um, so, if you are not t- attentively doing things within your team within the community you lead to make sure people feel like they belong by asking them by teaching them about psychological safety and inclusiveness by teaching them about what true collaboration means by, by how to have healthy conflict if you haven 't trained them to do those things, you shouldn 't assume people feel like they belong, but on the other end of the spectrum, you have malice right you have you have people who are bullies, you have the, the attention spotlight hoggers, you have the people who are have not ever addressed any of their own biases, unconscious or not. You have people who are alpha competitors who will run over anybody to get what they want, and you tolerate them. Sometimes you reward them, right? So whether it's malice or ignorance, there are drivers of othering in your organization. Um, and once somebody's been othered, whether it's because of something in their identity or some other difference, or just because it's uh, two departments who don't like each other, right? So they other each other. Um, you cannot afford those schisms. That kind of... Um, fragmentation is very costly to performance to employee experience and financially, so belonging at its core is another performance driver and an employee value experience that you have to attend to, but it doesn 't happen because you will it to happen or because you put you everybody went through the same diversity and inclusion training or they read an article that you put out on the unconscious bias. You have to work at it um, a lot, but the rewards for working at it are extensive
1: so the example that you took of a person that is perhaps a high performer or yeah has a high position or or just i mean i think there are a lot of companies that that operate in spheres where there might be hard to actually get the right talent and 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 they they need they want to grow and they need to recruit and and it's hard to 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 find the right people but yet you have the people that are really working against that sense of belonging. And I actually just had that conversation with the leadership team in a rather large organization the other day where they said, yes, we have these people and where to the leader who thinks, okay, I mean, but, but we kind of have to have them. We can't really Deal with this. It would cost us too much, or or it would make it too hard to to recruit people. Or this person is is re- irreplaceable. What would you say? What do you think they should do? And why do you think they should do it?
0: So you either have to be honest about being a hypocrite, or be honest about they're 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 not indispensable. You know, the whole, oh my gosh, that salesperson has all of our relationships. If we let him go, we're going to lose all. It, I've, I've never seen it be true. I've never seen the person everybody's afraid of fire despite their horrible behavior leave and have there be any consequence of, of merit ever in 35 years. So so you're just lying to yourself because you don't want to confront them. So be honest about that, saying, you know what? I'm too chicken to confront it, so I'm going to leave it the way it is. That's fine. You get to have, you get to have that choice and with it the consequences. But saying it's because they're just too valuable... To lose, we have to turn a blind eye. You've now said, okay, you know what? Turning a blind eye is okay. So when your accountant uh, in your accounting department turns a blind eye to the person next to him embezzling all the money, you can't say, hey, why do not you speak up? Because you told them it was okay to turn a blind eye to things. So you can't have it both ways. So you either can say turning a blind eye is perfectly okay around here. Duplicity, saying one thing. and du- So we say respect and teamwork, whatever, on the wall, but we do something else. So here it's okay to say one thing and do another. So the next time one of your managers comes into your business review and lies on a forecast because they're afraid, you don't get to say, you know, hey, you're lying about your forecast because you told them it was okay. You said it's perfectly okay, Miss Company, to say one thing and do another. So you get to have it all, right? But you can't have it both ways.
1: What would you say to the leader who says, so this is all well and good, but ultimately we have to focus on making a profit for our shareholders. We have to focus on, on hitting our numbers. And whenever we've done that, then we could perhaps talk about these more soft issues of honesty and, and justice and purpose.
0: Well, I would say get your head out of the sand uh, because you obviously don't know what it means to actually fo- fo- focus on driving margin and performance and profit. Because the most... Highest performing companies' profit, profitability, margin, customer loyalty, uh, market share are the most honest. So I would want your board to ask you, so you've decided we don't need these things because you think we're profitable enough or we're, we're growing fast enough or we have enough margin in our, in our P&L. Is that what I'm assuming? Because if you're telling me that pursuing the highest quality culture of integrity, justice, and purpose is too much work for you, because you're too busy doing other things, what other things could you possibly be doing that would that could get us better performance when we already know from the from years of research that these are the things that get us the best performance? So explain yourself to me. I want them to be held accountable for that.
1: Do you think that that one of the issues here is really the perspective of short-term versus long-term? That some of these things, when we look at them, when we look at taking the the tough conversations dealing with uh, maybe the high performers that, that are not living out the culture that we really should have or that are toxic or dealing with the toxic culture or whatever that would look like. That, that we look at it and we see a short-term cost and, and we're not really to put that in comparison to the long-term gain. Do you think that's one of the key issues here?
0: You know, I think it's a, it's a common experience. It's a common excuse to bias. I don't think it's an explanation. The explanation is just cowardice, um, because if you're going to put yourself in the same quarterly addiction to try and do all the shell games and move all the costs and rearrange your P and L to create the illusion of making the quarter, while continuing to disable your organization, right? You're, you're just weakening it from being able to perform. At some point, you, you, get, you get the invoice, right? So unless you're in some goal might have a market and there's not really much competition, at some point that luck or that streak will give out. So to say that I don't have time to get on with creating the the best culture possible because I'm too busy making the quarter, you know, what I say is great. If that's the truth, say it out loud to your shareholders, say it out loud to your customers, tell everybody the truth and see what happens. But if you're not willing to say it out loud uh, or be quoted in the newspaper as saying, you know, honesty is nice, but we have to make the quarter. If you're not willing to say it in the paper, then I, I would say, why not? If it's actually what you believe.
1: Thank you so much, Ron. And and, and thank you for, for a fantastic conversation. And also all the work that you put down into writing uh, your book, to be honest. And I would really, really recommend our, our listeners to, to go and purchase it. It's available on Amazon for pre-order. And so, Ron, what are other ways that listeners can connect with you and 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 follow your work.
0: Come to visit our website, Navalent, N-A-V-A-L-E-N-T dot com. We've got lots of great videos and white papers and a couple of free e-books uh, for download. And there's all kinds of rich information if you're looking to be a better leader and lead a better organization. Um, if you want to know more about the book, the book has a website, tobehonest.net. And there's some videos on there. And uh, we have a new TV show, a, new mag- a news magazine show called Moments of Truth, launching in the next week or two which in which case you get to you get to meet all these amazing heroes that I interviewed. So these are actual video conversations of my interviews with them for the book. Uh, so it will give you a front row seat to the people who inspired me. Uh, follow me on LinkedIn, please, and follow me on Twitter.
1: Thank you so much, Ron. And, and thank you for the work you do to to really create better and healthier organizations.
0: Tobias, right back Grateful for your work on the road too, and always a pleasure.
1: Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, it really means the world to us if you would share, rate, and review it on iTunes. We're super grateful for all the five-star reviews and generous comments that we've received so far. It really helps us take the message of purpose and integrity to a wider audience. And finally, don't forget to grab your free PDF on leadingtransformationalchange.com.